Beloved congregation of the Lord, this is his word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> the gospel of Jesus Christ is paradoxical. Gospel simply means good news, and the good news is that our Savior died. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And then in verse 21 he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And do you see the paradox here? The folly of preaching Christ's death is the power of God to give life and salvation to those who believe. Now, the book of Revelation is filled with the concept of paradox. And that concept is highlighted most in the message to the church at Smyrna. For example, the church at Smyrna suffered economic hardship, yet they were rich. Their enemies claimed to be Jews, yet they are called a synagogue of Satan. The Smyrnans were told that they may face death, yet if they remained faithful unto death, they would receive the crown of life. And similar to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ, the one speaking to the Smyrnans and offers them the crown of life, died. Yet it was through his death that he conquered and secured their eternal life. From these paradoxes, it becomes evident that the way that the world views suffering and death is not the way that God views it and is not the way that we as Christians should view it. Our Savior's suffering unto death was how he overcame and gained victory. And because of this, Christ is called the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. 
Well, we also are to be faithful witnesses even unto death, which likewise is how we overcome and share in Christ's victory. It is in this way that we are being conformed to the image of our suffering Savior. The Smyrnans needed to be reminded and encouraged of this glorious good news as they faced tribulation in their day, as do all the saints of God in this age of tribulation. The church in Smyrna had already been facing persecution through violence and mob looting because of their faith, and they were about to face persecution even more severely, perhaps some of them even unto death. Therefore, as Christ addresses them, he reminds them that he was the first and the last who died and came to life. And Christ's self-identification here comes from that first vision that John received of Christ in chapter 1. And in verses 17 and 18 of that chapter, John writes, When I saw him, that is Christ, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, the description of Christ as the first and the last demonstrates his divine status. He is the Alpha and the Omega, that is, the first and the last. All things were made through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. They were made through him because he is the Alpha creator. And they were made for him because he is the Omega consummator. He is the first and the last. Not only did he create all things, but he is bringing all things to their predetermined end. In other words, he is sovereign. This was important specifically for the believers in Smyrna because they were facing persecution. And in the midst of persecution, it's important to be mindful that Christ is the eternal one who is sovereign over all of history, even sovereign over the church's persecution. And so this self-identification of Christ would have been comforting to those in Smyrna Facing persecution even unto death. Now his self-identification didn't stop there. He also reminded them that he died and came to life. And here is the strange paradox of the gospel. Christ's death was his victory. And the resurrection demonstrated that victory. He conquered or overcame by his death, which resulted in his gaining the keys of death and Hades. Now, Hades is simply the realm of the dead. And having conquered through his death, he came to possess the keys. In other words, the authority over the realm of the dead. To hold the keys to something is to have the authority over it. 
He came to hold the authority over the realm of the dead. In chapter 20, verse 14, we read what Christ does with death in Hades. John writes, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now this fact is important to the encouragement that Christ gives to the Smyrnans back in our chapter, in chapter 2. Look down at the end of verse 10 and through verse 11. There Christ says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do you see how this is important to the Smyrnans facing persecution? If they would remain faithful even unto death, the first death, then they would receive the crown of life and would not be hurt by the second death, the lake of fire, which is eternal condemnation. Now, just a brief word here about faithfulness. Christ, in this passage, is not suggesting that their faithful witness to him unto death is what earns them the crown of life, their eternal life. In other words, we cannot earn our salvation by works of faithfulness. That would not be salvation by grace, but one by works. And scripture is abundantly clear that we are saved by grace through faith, not by grace through faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness are not one and the same. Faithfulness is the fruit of a true and living faith. We conquer or overcome through our faith. And the Apostle John himself, the author of Revelation, affirms this in another book he wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, which says... For everyone who has been born of God, here's our word, overcomes or conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so when Christ says, be faithful to the end and I will give you the crown of life, he is indicating that the one who is not faithful to him unto the end, That is, the one who does not conquer, does not possess true faith. And thus will not receive the crown of life, but will be condemned to the second death, the pit of fire that burns forever. So Christ's concern is with their faith being made evident, being demonstrated by their faithful witness to him in the midst of persecution, even unto death. Okay, so what were the particular circumstances in Smyrna that prompted the need for their faithful witness to Christ? Well, Christ says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, the tribulation that the Smyrnans were facing 
had been instigated by unbelieving Jews there in Smyrna. Ethnic Jews that rejected Christ were very aggravated by their brothers in the flesh who had converted to Christianity. Therefore, they would slander Christians or falsely accuse the Christians of upsetting the peace in the Roman Empire. And specifically, saying of them that they were agitating the Roman government on account of the Christians' failure to offer emperor worship. The Roman emperors thought of themselves as divine, and the citizens were required to call him Lord. But the Christians refused to call anyone Lord except for Christ. Well, the Jews had gained an exception to this by the Roman Empire because they were monotheists. They believed in one God and were granted an exception to this and were not forced to worship Caesar as God. But because of their dislike of the Christians, they would often point out to the Roman authorities that the Christians were not under the umbrella of Judaism and that they were disturbing the status quo of Rome by not worshiping the emperor. They don't have the exemption we have. And look, they don't call you Lord. And Jesus says that these slanderers call themselves Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They were ethnically Jews, of course. They had descended from Abraham according to the flesh. But if they were truly Jews, then they would not have rejected Christ. The Messiah. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. That if you are Christ's. Then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. And so the Jews who were persecuting the Christians in Smyrna. Were not the children of Abraham. But rather were of their father the devil. Just as Jesus himself says. In the gospel of Matthew. In fact, here Christ calls them a synagogue of Satan. Christians, you see, are the true synagogue, the synagogue of God. They are the Israel of God because they are united to Christ, the true Israelite, the true Jew. The Christians in Smyrna had likely had their possessions looted at times because the Jews who were slandering them... You know, which is why Christ speaks here of their poverty. Their possessions have been looted. They had economic hardship. But yet, Christ speaks here of them as being impoverished. But then, he says, I know of your poverty. And in this wonderful parenthetical statement, he says, but you are rich. And what he means is that they may not have the world's goods, but because they had been to this point faithful to him, it was evident that they were spiritually rich. In other words, their spiritual riches were demonstrated by their faithfulness to the Lord in the midst of affliction. Now, one might think that since they had been faithful thus far to the Lord, 
that he would remove them from further affliction. But that's not what Christ indicates in the following verse. In verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. More suffering, more persecution was coming for the Smyrnans. And Christ says the purpose for it was to test them. Now, Satan was about to throw some of them in prison, but it was not Satan who was testing them. The test was under the sovereign control of the Lord. Satan tempts, but he does not test. And conversely, the Lord tests, but he does not tempt. The Lord was going to test them by allowing Satan to put some of them in prison to to tempt them. And so for 10 days, it says, they were to have tribulation. Now, we've made clear that Revelation is a book filled with symbols. Well, numbers are always symbolic in Revelation. He's not telling them that they will only find tribulation and testing for a literal 10 days. He uses that number to allude back to Daniel chapter 1. Verses 12 through 15, where Daniel and his friends were tested for 10 days to see if they would be as healthy as the youths who ate from the king's table. You see, David and his three friends were tempted to eat food from the king's table that had been dedicated to idols. And so Daniel told the king's steward to let him eat only vegetables and drink water for 10 days and then check his appearance. Christ therefore uses this experience in the life of Daniel as an illustration for what the Smyrnans themselves were facing. Part of their poverty came from the fact that in order to conduct business in Smyrna, one had to be a part of the trade guild, which required honoring guardian deities Through festive meals. And so you can see how the Jews would take advantage of this situation and point out that the Christians did not have an exemption from these things. And so, for this and for other reasons, some of them were about to be thrown into prison. Now, prison in the ancient world was not a form of punishment, it was a holding place for. Someone who was about to be put on trial. And that is why Christ tells them at the beginning of the the verse to not be afraid. And then at the end of the verse to be faithful even unto death. The Smyrnans needed to be prepared to die for their faith. They were going to be put on trial. Would they be faithful to God to the end? Even if it meant that their trial led to death. But they need not be afraid. Of the first death. Because if they remained faithful. They would show themselves to be those of true faith. And therefore would receive the crown of life. And not be hurt by the second death. And so this then is the specific situation. That Smyrna was facing. 
But all seven of the churches were to hear what the Spirit was saying in this message. To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And since the seven churches are symbolic of the universal church, we too need to hear what the Spirit is saying in this message. Beloved, Smyrna was facing persecution both from ethnic Jews and from the Roman government to the point that some of them were likely going to lose their lives. That was their reality. You see, the beast in Revelation chapter 13 symbolizes persecuting powers in the world. And that could be an individual can be an institution, or even whole societies. And in the Apostle John's day, the beast, by and large, was the Roman Empire. And the beast, you see, wants people to worship him. For those who worship him bear his mark, the mark of the beast. Now, the unbelieving Jews were aligned with him. They were aligned with Rome. They may not have fallen down and worshipped the emperor as God, but they joined him in persecuting God's people. And that's why they were a synagogue of Satan. They had begun to bear the mark of the beast. Now those precise circumstances are not what we're facing today, specifically. But Satan is just as active today as he was in the days of the Apostle John when he wrote Revelation. In certain places around the world, it it is actually very similar to the way it was under the Roman Empire. For example, Vern Poitras writes, The mass of people in the Roman Empire were attracted to emperor worship. Likewise, communism, fascism, Hinduism, materialism, and New Age spirituality may be mass movements today, but Christians must Resist them. And by resist, Poitras means resist joining with them and worshiping what they worship. Now, Poitras wrote his book, the book on Revelation, uh, in the year 2000. And we can probably think of a few other mass movements in our day today as well, can't we? Christians must resist such movements because they are satanic enemies of God's people. Christians in different parts of the world today still face death for their allegiance to Christ. And for them, the direct message here in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, is to not fear, but to be faithful to Christ unto death. Now, here in America, we may not be facing persecution unto death, but that does not mean that we are not facing satanic forces which slander Christians, even intimidating Christians into unfaithfulness to God. Many churches in our day have given way to certain movements, even perhaps to the point of becoming synagogues of Satan themselves. And so here is a call to remain faithful to Christ.
We also need to recognize that Satan is not limited to using only mass movements. He works in smaller ways as well. We all face the beast in some form or fashion. Put a little better, Satan employs the beast in many ways. He comes in many forms, great and small. In what ways are you suffering? Is it with your health? Is it with your finances? Is it with a relationship you have? Interestingly, Satan employed all of these tactics to tempt Job to curse God. And it was God who allowed Satan to tempt him. You see, Satan and the world will tempt you with regard to whatever you are suffering to try and prevent you from being faithful to God. In the midst of suffering, you're going to want to escape. And the temptation will be to escape in an unbiblical way, thus preventing you from being faithful, being a faithful witness to Christ. And this, as I said, can come in smaller or larger ways. For example, you may be suffering financially, and in order to increase your profits, you might be tempted to cheat or to steal from someone or to use immoral practices in your business. Maybe the temptation is to work on the Lord's day. That is apart from works of mercy and necessity. Now maybe you're suffering relationally and and someone has attacked you or sinned against you in some way and you are tempted to return evil for evil. Perhaps it's your spouse who's not living up to the scripture's standards for a husband or wife. And you're tempted to transgress your own spousal duties in return. Or even to seek a divorce that is not founded in biblical grounds. Maybe you're suffering from health concerns. And the suffering is so severe that you're tempted to believe that God has abandoned you. Or even to question his existence altogether. And to fall away, to turn away. There are countless examples we could list, but there is also an example from history that I think is very helpful and is very much tied to this passage. And that example is the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was a young man in Smyrna when this book was written, and so he likely heard this letter when it was first read to the church in Smyrna. And later he became the bishop of Smyrna, and it is reported that he was a disciple of the Apostle John himself, even being ordained by the the Apostle John. Now about 60 years after the writing of this letter, Polycarp was imprisoned because of his testimony to Jesus and then brought before the governor for trial. And so you see this message to Smyrna, this portion of scripture being lived out in the life of Polycarp. And the governor tried to get him to commit the greatest act of unfaithfulness to Christ. There is. 
to recant or to deny Christ. And the governor said to Polycarp, and you can read this, you can just Google it online, you'll find the whole account. It's not actually uh, that long. If you would like to read it, I would encourage you to do so. The governor said to Polycarp, Have respect for your age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. Say, away with the atheist. The Christians were accused of atheism back then because they didn't believe in all the gods of of Rome. Now, in response to this, Polycarp looked out to the crowd there in the stadium where everyone was gathered to see him potentially executed. And he then pointed out to everyone in the stadium. He pointed out to the crowds, to the heathens there, and he said, away with the atheists. Calling them the atheists. And then the governor said to him, swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. And in response, Polycarp said, for 86 years, I have been his servant. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so the governor said, I have wild beasts. I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. And Polycarp said, call for them. Then the governor said, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. And listen to Polycarp's response he said you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly but why do you delay come do as you wish and then he was burned to death But he received the crown of life. Demonstrating that he was spiritually rich. Though he lost everything, even his own life, he was rich. What a paradox. Now, beloved, Polycarp was being tested. And the temptation was just the same as it was for any of the examples that I listed moments ago and countless others that we could perhaps experience. The temptation is to escape suffering in a way that is unfaithful to God. And the exhortation that comes from this passage in the face of tribulation is fear not. Do not fear the suffering. Or the result that the suffering may bring. But be faithful in your witness to Christ. Even Christ himself faced such temptations by the devil to escape suffering in a way that would have been disobedient to God the Father. But he overcame his enemy by undergoing suffering. Even to the point of death. In order to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2.15 And now, beloved, Satan, sin, and death no longer have any dominion over you who believe. Therefore, you 
are to be faithful to Christ in the midst of tribulation, for you are being conformed to his image. And that is seen so clearly in this passage. The Smyrnans were being slandered by unbelieving Jews and turned over to the Roman government, possibly to be put to death. Isn't that what happened to Christ? Slandered by unbelieving Jews, turned over to Rome, and then crucified. You see, because we are united to Christ by faith, we are being conformed to His image. And therefore, we must share in His sufferings. We must be faithful to Christ in those sufferings. Your faithfulness, listen, your faithfulness demonstrates that you are spiritually rich, even if lacking in what the world thinks is wealth. Beloved, it was prophesied that Israel was to be a light unto the nations, a faithful witness to the true and living God. And Christ was that light. And thus in Revelation 1 and also in Revelation 19, he was called the faithful witness. He was true Israel. And if you are united to him by faith, then you too are truly a child of Abraham and therefore the Israel of God. Isaiah's prophecy then is about you being a faithful witness before the world. Let me close with the words of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses." Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Amen. To the rock be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we pray that in the light of affliction, in our experience of tribulation, you would cause us to be faithful to you, that we would demonstrate our faith by being faithful witnesses to you. No matter what we face, Lord, help us to fear not, but to trust in you, the rock upon which we stand firm and upon which we cannot be harmed by the second death. We pray, O oh God, that we would demonstrate our spiritual wealth through our faithfulness to you in every situation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.